Uh, our scripture this morning comes from 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2. And as you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's word. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, thank you for this this amazing passage that reminds us who we are and what that means to us. Will you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, apply it to our lives today? Will you, even in these moments, prepare our hearts as we approach this table? We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Be seated. Maybe you noticed all of our pastors were a little taller today. And uh, the reason is because they have a platform here so that I can sit Uh, As my foot recovers, I'm not supposed to be on it uh, for very long. So thank you for uh, indulging us, at least for today. And I know some of you out front can't tell I'm sitting because we we worked out the height thing so that I wouldn't be just a little head uh, just right, right above that. So... In this uh, passage, uh, as we continue in in this series. Um, it, just a reminder, in the book of John, um, it was written to help uh, the true believer know that he is in Christ. Uh, we looked early on and, uh, in, in introducing the book at uh, 1 John 5. I write these, that verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So the, the point being that uh, there is a way to, to know we have eternal life. In this case, he is, uh, he is saying that this will prepare us 
for when he comes, but there's also a direct application now. And there's also great encouragement. And and right in the middle of the passage that I I just read to you, and this is what we're going to focus on, he he bursts into an exclamation of of praise, as we'll see in a moment. They, uh, as we've talked about in previous weeks, they were battling with heresies that were going on. Uh, The Gnostics, the Gnostic heresies, specifically Serenthus, Uh, was one that did not believe in the deity of Jesus. He distinguished between Jesus and the Christ. And you can't do that. You you cannot separate uh, that that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one, the one promised from all of Scripture and fulfilled in uh, the, the coming of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. And then we saw that there are several tests, and this, there will be some repetition in this as we go through the rest of the book. Tests to know, how do we know? How do I know if I'm a, a believer? Uh, the, the test of love, the test of obedience, uh, you know, not loving the things of the world, but the things of God. The doctrinal test against those who were denying uh, that Jesus is the Christ. But the emphasis is that not everyone in the world is a child of God. So this book helps discern for those who really are children of the living God, trusting in Christ alone for our eternal life. It affirms that in us. It gives us security in him to know that, and we see application for that. But for those who are pretending to be, it bursts their bubble. It doesn't allow them to cope with what's being said here and to still fool themselves into saying, yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer. They might try to fool others, but this penetrates to their heart. So the immediate context uh, that the first verses I read in verse 28, and now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, when Christ comes back, we may have confidence not to shrink from him in shame at his coming. So he is, he's saying, look, if you're in Christ, the second coming is not something that, that you need to be uh, uh, fearful of or that you feel that he will shame you or you should feel shame because, as we'll see later, that's the best thing when he comes again. We'll see that in some later verses. But right on the heels of this uh, Uh, encouraging them that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. Then it comes to an exclamation. And it's it's like a gasp (gasps) when he gets to this truth. And that's in chapter 3, verse 1. See, 
I wish I could put exclamation points there or breath marks or something because that's what's going on here. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. From now on, anytime you read that, try not to just read over it in a monotone. Try not to just let your, your eyes skim over that when you read through 1 John. Stop there. Meditate on that. Gasp at what that means for us. So what does it mean? Why, why does he gasp at this truth? I know some of us may even take it for granted. Of course he loved us. But we mustn't. Why? Because it is a different kind of love from any other. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. The New International Version uh, uh, says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. I actually like that wording better because it's, it's words we don't always use, commonly use, to lavish something on someone else. See what great love. Behold what manner of love. It, it's an outburst of astonishment. He can't believe it. Now, John had been with Christ. He was an, an old man at this point. And yet, he was still astonished. Oh man, may, may that be our testimony. That we never lose the astonishment that God would actually love me that much to call me a child. The, the literal term here is... is uh, uh, what great love. From what country? I know that doesn't make sense, but let me, let me explain. It's, or what quality, what race this is. In other words, he's saying this love is that different. Where did it come from? Uh, I've, I've had the, the joy of going overseas uh, a number of times in a lot of different countries, and I'm sure this is true in, in every country I've been to. But I remember specifically uh, being uh, walking in a Plovdiv, uh, Bulgaria. And we were with uh, one of our missionary partners, Pete Roman. And uh, walking across town, I had my little backpack and uh, was in jeans or, or something like that. And he said this to me, you know, and I'm, I'm feeling, you know, pretty, pretty comfortable traveling and, and that kind of thing. He said, you know everybody here knows you're an American, right? I said, what do you mean? What is it that makes me... Because, you know, I look around at them, and if they were walking in my town, I wouldn't say, wow, there's a Bulgarian over there. He said, no. He said, everybody can see. It's, it's how you dress. It's uh, what kind of shoes you wear. I'm looking at my shoes and, and all that, and, and I still... To this day, I can't tell you 
what it was. And he couldn't even describe it. But he says, you can just spot an American when they're over here because they, they look different. Well, here, John is saying, this is a whole different thing. This love is, is that different. From what country the word is used only six times in the New Testament, and it always implies astonishment. So here's the point. His love is uh, so different from ours that it should astound us. Martin Luther renders it, what glorious, sublime love it is. It's a different kind. So how so? Well, it's deeper than any other love. One uh, commentator said, we can no more understand his love than we can look into the middle of the sun. In other words, you can't. You can try, but you really can't do that. Because his love is a love that shrinks from no sacrifice. It's a love that is given when there is no lovableness in us. In other words, he didn't love us because we were lovable or lovely. That reason is not there. It's a love that won't be put off by our sinfulness. To understand more about how how deep his love is, we need to know that we are more sinful and lost than most of us even imagine without Christ. But along with that, we're more loved than we could ever understand. And then we see the application. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us John clarifies later in the book, uh, 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We've talked about propitiation already. We'll talk about it again when we get uh, to this. But um, some of you will remember, many of you will remember uh, the old gospel song, Oh, How I Love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Why? Because he first loved me. And that's it, isn't it? It's not a technicality. Who loved first? The gospel that is man-centered, that emphasizes how much we need to love God, is imbalanced unless the first focus is he loved us first. That's where it always has to start. Why? Because we couldn't love him first. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, when we were in a hopeless estate, that's when he showed his deep 
love for us. We were enemies who were lost without love, without the ability to love. In fact, according to the Gospel of John, the light came into the world, but man hated the light. And that's what it's talking about. The day before uh, John Owen uh, departed to be with Christ, the day before he died, 23rd of August, 1683, he uh, dictated his last letter to a friend. And here's what he said. I am going to him whom my soul has loved, or rather, who has loved me with an everlasting love. And then he went on to say, which is the whole ground of my consolation. Here he is. He's going to die the next day. His, his great hope, his great comfort is not that he loved Christ, but that the Father loved him. Owen, earlier in his ministry and uh, in, in communion with God, said, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him. I wonder what that would be. What is the worst thing we can do to the Father? Is not to believe that he loves you. You see, that's it. That's what John is saying here. So if there was to be love, it had to be that which was lavished on us, bestowed profusely upon us. And then we get to the identity of his love. Uh, this is the ultimate expression of his lavishment upon us. Um, we're called children of, of God. And that's what we've called this series, too. So that's not by our nature, but by God's grace. Then, and I love this, lest anyone should question, not only are we called children, but he says, that's what we are. And we're not just called that. That is our identity. That is who we are. J.I. Packer in Knowing God said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So let's apply this. 1 John 4.11, we'll get to later as well. But it says, it does have an application. It says, beloved, if God so loved us, and that's what's already been established here, we also ought to love one another. That's the application. Throughout the book, that is always the application of God's love toward us. We can gasp, we can be amazed, we can be astonished, but we can't stop there. We have to love others who are children of the living God. 
throughout the book, that's the application. So, last Sunday we had a congregational meeting. Anybody hear about it? <laughs> and some who attended it were concerned because they thought it was contentious. And I just got to tell you, that was not a contentious meeting. If you thought it was contentious, you either haven't been around church as much or you've forgotten. I have a lot of friends who are pastors. And I have heard stories about congregational meetings that would just curl your hair before you burst into tears. It's not exclusive to other churches. But we just aren't used to any disagreement around here. We've built buildings. We've acquired property. We've borrowed money to do those things. And every time we've done that, there has been barely a ripple. So what happened last week? Well, here's what happened. A motion was presented. An amendment was made and discussed and then voted on. It didn't pass. So the main motion, after it was discussed, was voted on and it passed. Neither position that was taken was more biblical than the other. They were both good motions, both good ideas. Either way would have worked. In fact, when it comes to, to getting a pastor, every church does it differently. And even St. Andrew's has done that part differently each time they have called a senior pastor. So this was not a biblical issue. So what do we do then where there's disagreement? It was just disagreement over preference. Well, as Presbyterians, what we did is the only way we have to decide which way to go when there are differences that are not biblical differences. When there are biblical differences, we get out our Bibles and we decide from the Bible. But when there are differences of preference, that's why you have votes. We always say, and we believe, that God shows his will through the congregation. So the question may be, well, what's that have to do with the message? It has everything to do with the message. I couldn't preach. I wouldn't be much of a pastor if I didn't apply his word to us as a congregation. How should we handle when there are disagreements, especially disagreements of preference? 
Well, let me use myself as an example. During my ministry on the presbytery level or general assembly level, uh, I, I have voted hundreds of times and countless times what I voted for did not prevail. Now, I say countless because I haven't counted. It's not a matter of winning and losing. It's just how we do things. We should be seeking God's will, and that's what we believe is the way he has shown us we can do that. But when my way hasn't prevailed, I never looked at those who voted the other way as my opponent or not my friend or anything like that. I don't care who votes the other way. We vote, and then whichever way the vote goes, we move on from there. So bottom line, disagreements are fine. It's how we handle them that shows if we're handling them like the world or handling them like children of the living God. And here's what John's already told us, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So the world handles differences this way, and we see it every day. You watch cable news, I don't recommend it, but if you do, (laughs) it's not good for your soul to watch too much of that. But if you watch that, you see a whole different way of handling things. It's talking badly about those who you disagree with. I don't care what channel you watch. They're all the same in that way. There are grudges. There's anger. There's speaking badly. There's questioning of motives. But if we believe, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we believe this, there's no room for grudges. There's no room for anger. There's no room to assume we know what is in other people's hearts. Because love, according to the scripture, thinks the best. Assumes the best. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And there's only room for that. Only room for his love. Now, I want to give you two cautions today. One is, if you wonder if I'm preaching right at you, I'll I'll tell you, absolutely. (laughs) That's what I say when people walk out the door and they say, I think that message was just for me. I say, it was. (laughs) It was for you and everyone else who heard it, including myself, and I have to live with it all week long. <laughs> so yes, it's absolutely, this is, this is God's word. But the other caution is this. If you were thinking, boy, so-and-so, I'm glad they're here. They really needed to hear that. <laughs> well, the truth is, if you were thinking that, you need to hear it. We need to apply to ourselves and to our own hearts. We are headed 
to the beautiful table. In 1 John 3, the second verse, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We are his children now, it's saying. But when Christ comes back, it will be even better. One thing that will be better is that we will be like him and see him as he is. As long as we're in this life, we see him and experience him by faith. Through his word. Then we will be with him. And this table, this table that we're about to eat together at reminds us that one of the things we will do is to enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb where he himself will be our host. We'll be with our fellow believers and nothing from this life will be able to take away the joy of being with him and his beloved forever. Let's pray. Oh, how beautiful is your love for us, Lord. We praise you for that. Will you help us to always in this life be astonished by that. Be astonished until that day when we are with you and we will be astonished by being in your presence forevermore. We ask now, Lord, will you prepare our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.